Over the last two weeks, Zain Ahmed and I have been speaking with candidates running for office in Harrow East, ahead of the forthcoming election on December the 12th. We've been discussing issues ranging from domestic to foreign policy affairs, as well as issues affecting the British Muslim community. This message is here to inform listeners that the forthcoming recording you're about to hear took place on Monday the 25th of November, and that any events that have taken place since have not been taken into account in this episode. This, of course, includes the leaking of NHS privatisation documents by Jeremy Corbyn on Wednesday the 27th, the incident that took place on London Bridge on Friday the 29th, the Channel 4 climate change debate, and many other issues. Do enjoy this episode. Make sure to subscribe and share if you haven't done so already. Welcome to a special episode of Al Hadi Hujjad Youth Podcast. My name is Zain Ahmed, and joining me is my co host Ahmed Gogol. In the run up to the December 12th general election, now more than ever, there is a need for proactive and honest leadership from our elected government officials. With this in mind, Al Hadi Youth felt it was necessary to reach out to all parliamentary candidates running for office in the Harrow East constituency. We will look to ask the questions you want to hear the answers for and touch on some of the key issues facing our local Muslim community, the wider constituency, as well as the nation at large, at such a key chapter in our country's history. To join me on our third session, we welcome Mr. Bob Blackman, who has served as an MP for the past nine years in Harrow East and is now running again as the Conservative candidate for Harrow East. Just a reminder, if you are registered to vote, please, please use this opportunity to vote and make your voice heard and make a difference in society. Um, just a reminder that if you're not in the area, you can still vote via your postal vote. So, Bob, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, firstly, just a bit about the background. I'd like to ask, what draws you to the Conservative Party and how effectively have you used your time in office? Well, I, I became a member of the Conservative Party when I was young. I, I joined when I was about 16. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I, I was attracted by the fact of uh, I don't come from a privileged background. Uh, my, the only privilege I had in life was a loving family who wanted me to be successful and be as successful as I could be, uh, use my opportunities at school and then to university. I was the first of my family to go to university uh, and uh, I went to Liverpool University uh, and there I was involved in the Conservative Party from the word go. I became president of the union uh, as a Conservative uh, back in uh, the 1970s. And the reality of what attracted me was that the Conservative Party for me uh, takes people, gives people an opportunity to achieve their full potential. We don't say to people, uh, you'll do this, you'll do that. We say to people, look, we'll give you the chance in life to succeed. And so you maximise your opportunity as a result of your individual efforts. It's something I passionately believe in. Uh, I think uh, in many ways, I think the, the, the uh, Muslim community are of similar mind. People who want to succeed through education and want to go on and be the best they can be. Yeah. Uh, so I think our party gives people that opportunity rather than the opposite view, which is to dictate to people what they should be doing, how they should be doing it. And therefore, I believe in less state control, more individual power and freedom, um, but also the uh, making sure that people are safe and secure in their own chosen environment. Um, Zane, of course, mentioned that we have the election on December the 12th. Yes. Uh, December the 12th. One of the most pertinent issues, perhaps, in the run-up to the election is uh, the NHS. Yes. I think the public in this election perhaps has more 
um, passionate views on the NHS and each party has their own very specific and, and in some ways polarised views on how they'll work with the NHS. In the last couple of weeks, of course, we know that there has been tremendous scrutiny of the mm. Conservative Party's NHS policy. Much, as what, much of what's been pledged actually in the manifesto has been labelled as misleading, perhaps even lies. Um, is that something which uh, you'd agree with? Uh, are you yourself confident on, on the Tory party's NHS stance? Yeah, we, we've obviously released our manifesto and we've, sure. we are committed to 50,000 more nurses in the NHS and at a huge increase in the number of GP appointments. Right. One of the things that I think is passionately true in the National Health Service is that far too often we are treating people who have become ill and seriously ill, yeah. whereas actually... If you can spot the illness early on, yeah, you can actually treat it, and the treatment is less severe, right? And we save an awful lot of money as well, and people live longer and healthier lives. So, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So, I read something yesterday which mentioned that of the fifty thousand, eighteen thousand five hundred of which are either existing nurses, which will be paid increases, or nurses who have requested leave in the past. Um, just kind of stepping back a bit as well. Since twenty ten, one hundred twenty thousand nurses have left. So we're in a deficit of 70, even if we had 50. Okay, well, there's always, always a gap in the nursing provision in the National Health Service, which is generally speaking around 43,000 vacancies. So what we're talking about is 50,000 more nurses coming on stream. And in order to encourage that, what we're talking about doing, and we're committed to doing, is obviously training people through university, getting because these days nurses have a university sure. degree so obviously it takes time to train them and bring them on on stream we're also bringing back mm-hmm. um, the bursaries for nurses now I think we in politics sometimes you have to say we made a mistake right. and we did make a mistake on nursing bursaries uh, by removing them. we're now going to restore them and I think that's a very sensible decision I think most people would say yes we want to train nurses we want people to go into the nursing profession uh, and so that is an area where, for example, we've said, okay, we got it wrong, so let's sure. put it right. And you do say there is a vacancy, a constant vacancy yes. among nurses, about 43,000. However, a study published in the BMJ Open in 2017 found that austerity that hit public services um, was linked to 120,000 deaths, and they linked a primary reason as the lack of funding for nurses. Well, I, I, I haven't read that study, I, I, I freely admit, but I, but I think we can all say that the position in terms of the health service is that the health service expenditure over the last nine years has increased year on year on year. What we do know, of course, is the health service is always under pressure yeah. because we have people, uh, an increasingly aged population, sure. we have people, uh, we have now cures for diseases that hitherto we would never have been able to solve. Which is, which is the good news. We also know that in the last two years of someone's life, they consume about 90% of the health service expenditure on that individual. So that, I think that this is one of the issues that we have to resolve, that often people are treated far too late in life. Um, we, we obviously evolved the Cancer Drugs Fund, uh, and that has dealt with a number of cancers. There's still cancers, I'm afraid, that we can't cure. Um, so... We've got, we've got to do far more research on that, that particular area um, and the other diseases that, that have to be taken into account. I do think in, in terms of nursing in particular, when we've done to doctors yet, yeah. but, but but obviously you know, the medical profession, I think we have to uh, encourage nurses, well-qualified nurses, to continue working, whereas many of them, unfortunately, have either left the profession or gone overseas because they see it as a better 
better future for them. Sure. We want to train them and encourage them to stay in the National Health Service. To just jump in, sorry, I, I don't mean to be rude. Um, sure. You mentioned, I think very rightly so, that there is increasing pressure on the National Health Service. I think we've, we have we all know, Zane, for example, works in the medical field himself. Um, it's it's a case where we all know, or perhaps some of us work in such a field where we are being stretched, yep. a number of hours are being worked, um, the patient requirements are growing. I read a statistic which said in 2010, 6,000 trolley patients were waiting in the A&E across the year of 2010. In 2019, thus far, it's only November, 65,000 mm. patients are waiting. That's, those numbers are truly shocking. They're absolutely shocking. Yeah, and it um, does apply, to, obviously, to our local uh, NHS and our local hospital, for example, Northwick Park, yep. where 90% of the admissions at Northwick Park are emergencies. Correct, so, yeah. so the but for, sorry to interrupt, on Norfolk Park, 43% of, of people in Norfolk Park are seen within four hours. The national average is about yeah. 85%. Yeah, I, I think you have, you have to be careful about, I, I understand the stats, Yeah, but it, but it's also the triaging that takes place when you arrive at A&E is important here. Because obviously there are people that turn up to A&E, frankly, shouldn't be going to A&E. Fair. Uh, the people that are need urgent treatment and life-threatening treatment are seen far quicker. So perhaps we should so, be... <coughs> I think so I think the stat, we've yeah. got to be careful about stats. I don't, I'm not going to say, oh, well, everything's perfect, mm-hmm. far from it. Mm-hmm. But having experienced A&E at Norfolk Park as a patient, um, and my wife as well as a patient, I do know how, how the system works. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I have done, for example, for the National Health Service here, is I was instrumental in securing the, the funding for the new A&E department at Norfolk Park. For people that have relatively recent memories, back in 2010, we had a position whereby the, the statistics were awful at Norfolk Park. If you went to Norfolk Park Hospital, yeah. you would work, you would wait many, many hours yeah, before you see. I think completely unacceptable. The, the new A&E, yeah. which has been properly designed, has all the facilities within it, uh, obviously has a position whereby that will have a, a, a seamless uh, path through all the medical treatment that anyone needs. Sure. Now, do we have enough doctors and nurses there? That's a that's a that's a moot point. I think what we could do. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt yeah, you sure. again. Uh, <clears throat> one solution for for this is is walking clinics. I think we'll talk a bit about Harrow. Belmont Health Centre yep. was a, a case of something which is closed in the last no, uh, few closed. weeks. It hasn't closed. No, and we need to be. You see, the, one of the problems here is the myth that's put about about Belmont Health Centre. Sure. Belmont Health Centre has changed from being a walk-in centre, and the walk-in centre. If I could the just, walk-in clinic has closed. The, well, it's, it's what we've got here now yeah. is an appointment system. So what used to happen was anyone from anywhere could walk in, sure. and they'd walk in and wait. Worse still from that, and they'd be waiting several hours to see a GP. Worse than that, if they left, they lost their place in the queue. So if they came back, they'd have to queue again. Um, So if you are seriously ill, that was not a very good, uh, well, you certainly didn't get good service at the health centre. What the clinical commissioning group has done, and I I looked at this in some detail, what they have done is to say, we've changed it to an appointment-only system. So you phone up and make an appointment, you can see a GP, therefore, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, between yep. 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Fine. And yep. they've trebled, trebled 
the number of appointments. Available. I'm glad to hear because at the moment I think the average resident in Harrow, I've got a statistic here which says 26% of Harrow residents wait more than a week to see a GP. I know the walk-in clinic sees 500 patients a week. Yeah. I've got friends who uh, use the walk-in clinic. It's their local centre. Um, and I, I wanted to ask perhaps, is, is that something which... Uh, is going to be consulted to the... So the walk-in clinic is closed or not? They're closed on the 1st of November. So the walk-in clinic is closed. But, and yeah. Yeah, here's the big part, it means that people have the opportunity right. to phone up, make an appointment, and and what and obviously through the GP service. Yeah. Now, for, for a lot of working people, that's very convenient because they can then make an appointment to see a GP sure. at the weekend or out of hours. There's also people who use the walk-in clinic who don't have English as their first language yep. or perhaps don't have the facility, elderly people who don't have facilities to make the call or to arrange an appointment. Um, the walk-in clinic offers the opportunity for someone, like you rightly said earlier, who doesn't need to go to A&E but can walk into a clinic, wait a few hours as they will in A&E and be seen by someone who's the other problem. The other problem was as well um, that routinely yeah. when they saw people, they had to call an ambulance to take them to A&E because they don't have... It's a, they don't sure. have facilities to deal with people that are seriously ill that should have gone to A&E in the first place. Sure. We've spoken about some of the you know issues, the hardest hit areas of the NHS over the past nine years linked to austerity. Um, you mentioned rightly that the NHS budget has been increasing year on year. However, since 1949, accounting for inflation, it's increased roughly 3.6% year mm-hmm. on year. But over the last decade, it's only increased roughly 1.3% on year, year on year. That decrease in, in the rate of increase of the budget, do you think that's directly responsible for these? Uh, the, the figures I don't recognise, So, yeah. I mean, I, I, but, 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 I, but I hear what you say, yeah. but I don't, don't, don't recognise those. I mean, our, our problem is that the National Health Service can consume the entirety of our GDP because there is so much to do. So we've got to, you've got to make decisions. Um, you, you mentioned austerity, and clearly the position is that we were left in the position in 2010 when there was no money left, literally. Um, so what we have done over the past 10 years, or nine years, is is to close the gap between income and expenditure. And we haven't completely closed it yet. Uh, and also, that just means that you're adding to the national debt all the time. What we've done now is to reduce that deficit to a position whereby uh, there is a a minor deficit now compared to, to what we inherited and that allows us to invest in the National Health Service which is why we've committed to for an extra 33.9 billion pounds I think sorry I think we want forward. to crack on so yeah. uh, last question I want to ask you on the NHS right and then we can move on I know there's so much to discuss <coughs> excuse me would you say a vote for the Conservative Party is a vote to sell off the NHS most certainly not uh, the reality is that the last Labour government privatised large sections of the National Health Service. Uh, we have introduced certain means of, of, of private in investment in the National Health Service. And people should remember that every GP service is actually a private organisation contracting to the National Health Service. Right. It's good you mentioned that because in 2011, you actually voted in Parliament to support the proposed NHS reforms, including giving more power to GPs to commission services to private entities. Um, when we talk about this election, obviously that was eight years ago. Eight years later, it's still a discussion we're having today. Donald Trump has said it's everything is on the table, including the NHS. Um, there's been a lot of back and forth within the Conservative Party as to whether it is on the table or not. There's been, well, era. well but let's, be, let's be abundantly clear. Yeah. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as Liz Truss is concerned, and Liz Truss is the you know international trade uh, Secretary of State, we made clear the NHS is not part of any trade negotiations. We will use drugs from uh, America. We do now. 
You know, you yeah. people that are involved in health service. We buy drugs from the national health uh, through through uh, American drug companies. Of course, we do because they've got good research and good capability. Mm-hmm. We are not going to have American companies running our national health service. Mm-hmm. Full stop. No question about it. We we were going to maintain that that position. Now, if clinical commissioning groups wish to commission particular services that they then control uh, to to private contractors. I think that's beneficial, actually. What that does is is provide better healthcare, uh, uh, and they're making that decision. And it's a clinical decision being made, as opposed to government making that decision. Um, Having now discussed quite a lot about the (laughs) NHS, um, we'd like to now move on to a a different topic. Just um, a study from the Office of National Statistics suggests to us that more than 25% of jobs in Harrow pay less than the national living wage, which is over 24,000 employees across Harrow alone. Um, it's been announced that Labour will guarantee an immediate £10 national living wage for all over-16s upon taking office, as well as equal pay with shorter working weeks. What is the Conservative stance on the national living wage? Well, obviously, we introduced the national living wage and we've increased it uh, every year. We've, we've given the commitment that we will continue to increase it. And equally, and this is the other issue, we're, we're committed to raising uh, the starting point at which you pay national insurance, uh, which will eventually get to 12500 as the same as... Uh, the rate that you pay start paying tax so there's a combination of things here you have to look at it's not just the wage that someone's paid it's the the income that's in their pockets sure Uh, we have of course maintained the national living wage above what labor have committed to each time we've we've uh, every year we've we've raised it further than they were uh, asking for so i think we we are quite clear (coughs) i want to see low pay eliminated uh, but i think there's a risk here and you always have to uh, look at, if you make an immediate change, then what we had in Harrow, when I was first elected, the um, rate of unemployment was around uh, 6.5%, 7%. Right. It's now down to below Four. 2%. Really? Yes. I, I read something earlier today which says 4.8%. No, it's no, no. Harrow no. East alone. No, 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 most certainly not. Okay. We, I think we can look into these that are now. the figures from the ONS. Uh, about, uh, the last figure was about 2.4%. And I think what I'm right in saying of young people, um, so between 18 and 24, uh, we were down to 120. We can um, look into that. So I, I do want to ask you about unemployment. In fact, we're, we're short on time. But the question I want to ask is, do you know what the pledge is? I know you mentioned that it's higher than Labour's pledge for national living wage. Do you know the Conservative Party pledge? Oh, off the top of my head, I don't. I mean, I, you it's know, £10.50. So yeah. you are right in saying yeah. it's above Labour's. I've actually researched something. So currently it's £8.21 pence as the national living wage. The Treasury said that the proposal would raise the low pay floor from 60% to two thirds of median earnings. Sources said that they were the pay, sorry, said that were the pay pay floor (laughs) to continue to be pegged to 60% of median earnings, the national living wage would be £9.45 an hour rather than £10.50 by 2024. <laughs> so I don't want to get semantic. I'm not a mathematician. Sure. I will say, however, that calculations have come out by economists, by econom- uh, you know, organisations that talk about these things to say the pledge is there. It's not practical. It can't happen within five years to raise something to £10.45. Let's, let's say it does, for argument's sake. We're saying that the Conservative Party will raise the national living wage for, I think it's over 21s or something like that, yes. around that figure. Labour are saying from day one, not on year five, um, to raise it to £10 for over 16s. Mm. Now, two are very different approaches. One pledges slightly more money, but for older people, a lot later. Yeah. Another says slightly less money for younger people a lot earlier. And, and, but there's also a risk with this, and that's what I want to come to, because I, that's why I talk about unemployment. Yeah. For a lot of small firms, when you raise the, the national living wage, 
obviously that the impact of that is they may say I can't afford to employ people. Yeah. And I want to see I want to see full employment and, and, and the opportunities for people to actually be working. My my concern would be that especially in this sort of area where Harrow East is a what I would call a dormitory constituency. We don't have much business here, but people commute to wherever right. they're working. Yeah. Uh, but the risk is that those jobs may go. Sure. And if, if we if we end up with high unemployment, then people are certainly no better off. In fact, they'll be far worse off. Or they'll be sure. dependent. I think on we have high employment, but it's just the pay of a lot of people in Harrow is, is, is yeah. pretty bad. Twenty-four thousand people. I mean, that's that's around about the number of people which voted for you in the last election. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's you know it's something to bear in mind. Um, um, yeah, we'd just like to now move on to slightly. Like we've spoken about employment in Harrow specifically. I'd just like to say that the Tory Party leadership has often been criticised for its frequent use of misleading statements and lies in the news recently, such as those on the NHS. The leader, and let's not forget the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is not exactly a man who inspires trust. Having written both pro-Remain and pro-Leave articles for The Telegraph, and only deciding which one to publish just days before publicly coming out in favour of Leave, has shown that he, some to say that he favours his career over party and country. Mohammed Amin of the Conservative Muslim Forum declared him morally unfit to be Prime Minister and claimed he has a lack of concern for the truth and a lack of concern for other people. Among recent misleading acts is the fact that during a live leadership debate, an official Conservative Party media account changed its name to Fact Check UK in a deliberate attempt to mislead the public. Also, Boris Johnson claimed Telford A&E would be kept open at the manifesto launch. Shortly afterwards, Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, then reneged on that promise. Furthermore, um, there's the lie that the Tories spending rights pledge on the NHS is the biggest in modern memory. I mean, I could go on. I mean, how can anyone be expected to trust anything that comes from a Conservative Party member or that they have the slightest concern for the general public? Well, I mean, clearly we, we have run the National Health Service for almost an entirety of its existence, apart from obviously the, the, the periods when Labour have been running it. I think we have run the health service very effectively, we've invested in it, and we've made it made it quite clear. Um, we've made commitments on, on funding of new hospitals and new new services in the NHS. We've delivered on those promises throughout the, the years when we've had difficult decisions to make on funding. And the National Health Service, for example, has been protected all the way through uh, our years of, of service. Uh, um, in, in Boris uh, is uh, uh, obviously an individual who sat and decided which way he was going to jump in terms of Brexit by writing down the views both for and against. Do you not find that and disingenuous? No, because one of the things, no, I think what you always have to do in politics is examine what you believe in and why you believe in it. And actually often by arguing or looking at the arguments of yep. one side, you can then say, right, okay. What about, what about Fact Check UK? And the Fact, well, that, that, that's a decision. I mean, a lot of people do this sort of thing on social media. They will put stuff people up. People from the governing party well, in their press well, office. That's a view. I'm, I, I'm, my, my, my personal view is that I see uh, misleading information on, uh, on uh, social media all the time from various different, different groups. Right. And different people have been guilty of, I'm afraid, quite misleading information on a regular sure. basis. I know, you, I'm sure you know uh, Boris personally. Would you say he's a moral person? I, th- I think he is. I think he's he, yeah, he's a moral person. I mean, I don't comment on his personal relationships and so on, because I think that's a matter for a matter of public knowledge, I think, uh, about him. But I think his his stance on things is is very clear. Sure. Uh, he, sa- he says what he believes. Uh, yeah. People don't always like what he says or what he believes, but he at least does say what he believes. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so um, thank you for your answers on that, Bob. Um, we'd just like to say we've covered some issues of national policy. We've covered some issues of uh, cuts to public services. But it's important to remember, of course, that we're a podcast primarily aimed at Muslim youth. Sure. And one of the main issues, obviously close to our community members, is Islamophobia, a growing problem in this country. It's on the rise and it's an industry fueled by media and political rhetoric. Many of your own constituents have been victim to such hate crime and violence. A large number of our members will be voting for the first time. And one of the main issues that will decide where that vote goes is the issue of Islamophobia. I'd like to ask if you personally accept the APPG definition of Islamophobia, which is a definition that's been widely accepted by educational institutions, Muslim leaders, Muslims up and down the country, as well as the Labour and the Lib Dems, the other major parties. And in the I think the Scottish Conservatives. And the Scottish well. Conservatives in major political parties. I think, I, I don't personally accept the definition, and I'll tell you why, because I think it's too vague. Uh, I think it's open to interpretation. I personally want us to, I, I don't want anyone who is a Muslim to feel intimidated, threatened, or any other uh, basis other than fulfilling their full potential in their life, sure. going about their business. I, th- I mean, I think so it if is anyone, clear. If any, if any individual is a subject of, uh, of any sort of race hatred, yeah. um, abuse, bad language, or were still physical um, uh, damage, they must report it to the police. My concern is that the, the, the this very broad definition of Islamophobia I, has I'm, the risk. I'm sorry, Mr. Black, I would have to, I would have to disagree personally. Um, as as a Muslim, yeah. as a Muslim uh, who hosts a podcast on Muslim issues, I think it's a pretty clear statement. I think it's one which has been coordinated with hundreds of communities up and down the UK, proposed by the Muslim Council of Britain to the All Party Parliamentary Group on British Muslims. I'll read it out to you for the benefit of perhaps yourself or maybe those who don't who are not aware of the actual definition. Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or even perceived Muslimness. Now, to someone who uh, accepts the definition, forget me, I may know nothing. Sure. Let's talk about party leaders. Let's talk about your two main opposition parties, mm-hmm. as well as the, the Scottish division and, uh, and, and branch of the Conservative Party. Why is it that every single... Uh, main organisation has given credibility to this definition, but not the Conservative Party, who suffers from arguably real institutional <clears throat> Islamophobia. I think the the issue then it comes towards the end of that definition, perceived Muslimness. Sure. I mean, what is perceived? So I could Muslimness? be I could be perceived as a Muslim. Would I not? I mean, with well, a beard, with a name such but, as my but, own. But, but having a beard doesn't make you a Muslim. Oh, there we That's go. That's true. But it's it's also been shown that certain members of the Sikh community, for example, have faced attacks. Because people think they look Muslim. And that is an Islamophobic attack on a Sikh person, yeah. which is entirely wrong because they've been perceived and, as Muslim. And, uh, but the problem is yeah. that what we're looking at is, as you quite rightly say, race hatred, yeah. which I, I condemn, absolutely. Religious hatred, I condemn. Sure. What we've got to, I mean, I, I, I in fact, I, I came to the, the, the centre uh, and had a discussion with uh, leaders here and said, look, I would like to work on a definition that we could actually get everyone to agree with. Now, that offer is still on the table. I know Brandon Lewis, for example, who was the minister, chairman of the party at the time, um, has looked at this and said, we've got to to do something about Islamophobia, but we've got to get to a definition which can be an internationally agreed definition. I think, with all due respect, I think everyone agrees with it, especially in the Muslim world and Britain, apart from the Conservative Party. But that's entirely fair. I mean, yeah. you, you, you have every right to, to, to not agree with it or not affiliate to it. Yeah. I think we what we wanted to understand is why the Conservative Party doesn't um, and everyone else does. That's absolutely fair. I want to move on because we're, sure. we're running out of we're time. We're running out of time, yeah. yeah. Um, 
let's crack on. I'm, it's, of course, constituents who are listening to this, particularly Muslim constituents, I know you've got many thousands of Muslims in Harawis, um, must be aware of some of the incidents from your own track record, mm-hmm. um, which I believe they're entitled to know. Let's re- run through some of these. You've retweeted Stephen Yaxley Lennon, commonly known as Tommy, Tommy Robinson, who is known nationwide to be one of the most hate-filled racists and Islamophobes in the country, uh, and a man who's been banned from social media sites himself for using bigotry, and also has authored anti-Muslim books, which has been banned online from being sold as well. Now, yourself as a representative of hundreds, thousands of Muslims in this constituency of endorsers. Let's put that aside. I know that's in the past and you've commented on it. Secondly, you've also invited an anti-Muslim nationalist to parliament. No, 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 no. Be, be, be very I'll, clear. I'll, let me, I'll, I'm not going to ask you to justify that. I want to ask you something. No, be very clear. Different. I did not invite him. You hosted an event. Rather no, no I hosted an event at which the Hindu Forum of Britain and sure. the National Council sure. of Hindu Temples had invited various... Speakers. That's absolutely fine. Allow me to finish. I'm not going to ask you to justify that. That's, no, it's not justification, but I want to correct the record. That's fine. That's the record fine. Is, I'll, no, I'll, is I'll quickly finish this off, and then I'll, I'll, it's all yours. Absolutely. Um, that's a man who, I'm sure you agree with me, has got some of the most outrageous and inflammatory remarks regarding Muslims. Um, I've got in front of me 15 tweets from Tapangosh. One of them actually reads, Muslims marching against terrorism? Funny. Why they why are they not leaving Islam? That'll be a real step against terrorism, nothing else. Now that's ironically a tweet in response to Tommy Robinson. Mm-hmm. Tommy Robinson's been pictured with Tapangosh. You've been pictured with Tapangosh and you've retweeted Tommy Robinson. Uh, would I've you would you agree? Okay. So I was just gonna say very quickly, I'm not gonna ask about those past instances. I'll say, is it should you be categorized amongst these people and their views? Most certainly not. Okay. And I want to be very clear on this because I want to correct the record for, for what happened. For example, You've mentioned the, the, the retweeting of, of, of Tommy Robinson's tweet. The tweet was uh, from the Hindustan Times. It was the front page of the Hindustan Times yeah. where a Hindu priest had been murdered by a mob. Yeah. Um, and I was sitting in Delhi airport at the time. Yeah, right? so, I've read so, your response. Right? This, yeah. I, I just want to be clear because yeah. I should have looked and seen who tweeted it. Fair enough. Right? Yeah. I made a mistake. And I put my hands up and say, I'm an no, entirely fair. I do not agree with For those his who views are in any shape or form. Yeah. Uh, I condemn his his views, his stance, and uh, you know, I have nothing whatsoever no, to do with him. So for those who are unaware, the tweet said, Hindu temple attack, priest stabbed to death in Bangladesh, which is atrocious, and we all condemn that. Then the tweet carries on, the reality of being a minority surrounded by Islam. Um, now, I know in your response in the past, you've said you didn't see who it was tweeted by. Yeah. That's, that's fine. Um, and Twitter is very clear, but regardless... Uh, you would have read the tweet. I, you may agree with the article, but the tweet itself is very clear in saying the reality of being a minority surrounded by Islam. Um, we'll leave that there. Um, the other thing I want But let to, me just say as well, yeah. for example, you may have seen a tweet that I put out over this weekend condemning China mm-hmm. for its treatment of the Muslim minority Brilliant. and brainwashing them. I mean, I condemn any action that's taken, against, particularly against minorities. Yeah. You know, I think where there's a, a large majority, well, they can look after themselves. But when they're a minority, they need protection. So yeah. I've stood up not only for the Muslims in China, but the Muslims in Sri Lanka. Yeah. I'm chairman of the all-party group for the Council of Sri Lankan uh, mosques. So I'm, I'm not someone who is against Islam. I'm not. You know, it's, the fact is that, unfortunately, what, is, what has often happened is... I have taken a, a stance when minorities are attacked um, to help protect them. I made a mistake. I'm not, you know, Fair I'm, I'm very clear and on this. Would you, just out of interest, if it was a, a, an Islamist extremist 
or, or a massive anti-Semite which was invited, would you condemn that and, and have no platform on that sort of event? Oh, I, I, I didn't. Well, one of the things with Taipan Gosh, he was invited by these other groups. Had I known that he had been invited, then I would not have hosted that event. Sure. So it's just just to be very clear, what happened at the that when the event happened, I was there at the start of the event and I left because I had to do other things. Okay. So I wasn't even there when Taipan Gosh spoke. You you did say so. I don't want to drag on this. Yeah. I'm just I just want to close on this. I know in the Sky News it, it does say where well, you're a passionate believer in free speech. Absolutely. Now I think many of us are. Is there not a line? That can be drawn where someone is someone like that who's really got enough on the record to show that he hates Muslims or really hates Islam or Islamic theology or identity, and to then roll out the red carpet it may not have been you, but whoever well, did it. Well, uh, we didn't roll out the red carpet, but 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 just to give you an example. I think yeah. of what what has happened in this country, the BNP yeah. as a party were riding very high in the polls. That then there was a lot of controversy about this, and Nick Griffin was invited onto Question Time. You may remember Correct, this. I do, yes. He was exposed for the idiot that he is, yeah. for having disgraceful views. But what that is the transparency of having someone questioned and put under pressure of what he really believes. But is there but, not the issue that the fact that after this issue was raised to you, you then on your Twitter you defend you retweeted tweets that were defending his appearance in Parliament? Uh, I, what, what, I, what I defended was his right to come into the Mother of Parliaments and and have have an opportunity to speak to the so people. Now, what should have that. happened, right, what should have happened is we should have, had we known that he was coming, we would have then questioned him and we would have, we would have subjected him sure. to scrutiny over what his views really are. Um, and, and some of these things that you've quite rightly pointed out, I find repugnant. You know, people should not be saying things, such things. But actually what we need to do is to expose these people and bring them okay. out so, so that actually we can combat them. But if you just try and hide it, then the problem is these people still think these things. Um, so also and they have followers. Yeah, so understandable. <laughs> so um, we've spoken a bit about um, your record. Now, just in general on the Conservative Party, um, it has been accused by some of dishonesty and deception, particularly over tackling Islamophobia. During the recent leadership election, um, all candidates committed to holding an independent inquiry, since looking specifically into Islamophobia. But this has now been watered down into a broad inquiry into prejudice and discrimination as a whole. Uh, Michael Gove on Radio 4 recently claimed that an independent inquiry into Islamophobia will be established before the end of the year, but this was then dismissed by the Conservative Party. Uh, just this weekend, we had Boris Johnson claim that the Conservative Party has zero tolerance on Islamophobia, but over the last two weeks, we've seen almost daily accounts of Conservative PPCs having been found of Islamophobia with the party taking zero action on it. This now downgraded inquiry will not address the specific um, problems the Conservative Party has with Islamophobia. A broad brush approach won't identify the root cause of this particular type of racism which has infected the party. It will just merely look at the tip of the iceberg. Um, the Prime Minister has to listen to the victims of Islamophobia, both inside and outside the party. And the first step towards tackling that issue is to hold an independent inquiry specifically to it. And with many Muslims having already lost faith in the party, it must get this inquiry right um, to ensure that it fixes a significant problem. Um, I'd like to ask, what is the Conservative Party doing institutionally to address Islamophobia and the need for this independent inquiry? Well, the first thing, for, in terms of your you're talking about, obviously, certain parliamentary candidates that have expressed views which are, are unacceptable. Clearly, the party has taken action. They've withdrawn support uh, for that candidate. So uh, you, 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 
but when nominations have closed, you can't do anything about, about, about them as candidates. They are candidates unless they choose to withdraw. What you can do is withdraw support, and we have done. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, in terms of broader uh, investigation, I think it's right that all political parties, and obviously we're talking about the Conservative Party, that look at themselves and subject themselves to appropriate scrutiny and have this detailed view on all aspects of prejudice and discrimination. I think so, that's right. Sorry, now, in, terms of, in terms of Islamophobia, that's a specific issue. Um, and and one, of the, one of the problems we have, uh, and we, we should be clear on this, is that because we do not agree with the current all-party parliamentary group definition of Islamophobia, then you've got to be careful about what the criteria are for any inquiry. Because if you're matching it against that definition, which the party does not accept, then it's not going to get anywhere. I'm sorry, Mr. Buckland. Personally, I, I entirely disagree with you. I'll tell you why. Sure. Um, the reason why is we have proof of institutional racism and Islamophobia within the governing party. We have a prime minister who's come out and he said that Muslim ladies, like many of those who are in this community here, look like letterboxes and bank robbers. Mm. Now, he said comments about people of different kinds, but let's talk about Muslims. Sure. At the same time, we've got, we've got councillors, we've got MPs, um, including yourself with all due respect, who have been linked to the discussion on Islamophobia. Now, if we are recognising this as the Conservative Party are pointing at the Labour Party and talking about anti-Semitism, rightfully so, the same should be done to the Conservative Party. Why is there no real action being taken? If all the candidates have promised an inquiry into Islamophobia, yet at the same time, not only we haven't had that, but there's been an increasing number of scandals which have come out about Muslims and the relationship between Muslims and the Conservative Party. What is being done? What actual action is being done? I, the reason why I'm asking you is I'm, let's say, a constituent of Harawi's, sure. for argument's sake. I'm one of the 10,000 Muslims that live in Harawi's. I need to be sure that you and your party will represent me and my safety because there is a rise in hate crime. There is a rise on, in violence and abuse to our mothers, sisters and ourselves. How can we be sure that you, your party and, and generally the leadership of this country will protect Muslims? Well, the first thing, obviously, is that any such hate crime, any such views must be reported to the police, which is so they must be monitored and action taken by the police. And if it, if it is such that it, it demands a criminal investigation, then that has to take place. So everyone, everyone should have the right to go about their lawful business free of fear, which is a very important thing. Sure. We as politicians have a duty to, yes. not to incite. Like Mr. Johnson fear. did when 300% well, rise in hate crimes the week after he said ladies look like letterboxes and bank robbers. I think that, that is real incitement. I, I'd well, say. well, you may may. may May call it incitement. I think mm. it's 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 poor use of language. I would, Agreed, I would yeah. say, yeah. Um, because we we should not be commenting on how people dress, how they present themselves, uh, and that is not a problem in British society, or should sorry should not be a problem in British society. Mm -hmm. And I feel very angry that people of whatever faith. And, I, and, you know, I know and, you and uh, call it um, a poor choice of words, but do you think there there may be something more to it than that? Because with repeated remarks like these, not just from Boris Johnson, but from other members of the Conservative Party. It's, it's directly led to a recent survey of Conservative Party members, which found that almost half said they'd be uncomfortable with a Muslim prime minister. And around two thirds said they believe in the far right conspiracy, that there are no-go areas of the UK where Sharia takes precedence. Surely that's case institutional. If, if it's anything, it's institutional. If members as well as candidates have... It's, it's interesting the survey took place because no one asked me. 
Uh, so you know, no, I don't, I I don't know who conducted this survey. I think specifically the members. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a member. I've been a member of the party for you know an awful yeah. long time, but no one asked me. One thing we have to. I've, I've never actually met a member who was surveyed, by the way. So, sure. No, fair enough. I'm sure it's a sample size survey. At the same time, I, I, I'll ask you one thing: mm. Do you accept, firstly, that there is an incredible amount of Islamophobia within, within the Conservative Party? I, I don't accept yeah. that there is there's an incredible amount of Islamophobia in the sure. party. What I do think is true is that, there are, that, that actually I would like to see more Muslims involved in the Conservative Party right? I, I, who share the party's values and can actually correct the probably lack of understanding. Sure. I think, I think the first step in doing that is to have a leader in the Conservative Party which respects Muslims and also perhaps working with Muslim communities on, on issues like the definition so on and so forth. Um, we've got to crack on, Zane. Is there anything you wanted to add before we moved on? I just, I would like to ask one final question just to, to wrap up this Islamophobia thing. We've spoken about the record of different Conservative MPs and councillors, um, and we've spoken about your personal record. I'd just like to ask, based on um, the Tommy Robinson, the, the Tapangosh incidents, would you unequivocally apologise for any offence and any Islamophobia that you've been linked to? Well, I, obviously, I have said, yeah. I have made mistakes. I'm quite open about that. If, I think what you have to do is when you make a mistake, you say sorry. So I would say sorry for any offence that I have caused through my mistake. It's not anyone else's, it's mine. So I would I would absolutely apologise for any offence that I, I, I've caused uh, by such things. But I, but I also say as well, I will continue to speak out when minorities, and I don't care where those minorities are, yeah. are... Uh, under pressure or under intimidation or under attack yeah. and I think that's that's clear possibly uh, I, the only thing the only final thing I would say in my defence is it's quite early on when I was using Twitter I, I, mean, the same I would not for, make the same yeah, mistake again. no fair enough the same is for Facebook I don't want to keep dragging on but you you also shared a, a, an article a story on, on uh, Facebook where you said Muslims well you shared Muslim Somali sex gangs say ra- raping white British children is part of their culture and that's from an anti-Muslim website now Again, I'm sure. No, well, can I can I just correct sure. my position here? Because obviously, that self self same story was covered word for word by BBC News. I, I still don't think it, it's, but, but, but it's the, fair the, at all. Regardless, but, it's, it's, no, but hang on, wording is shocking. It's well, really... the, the, what was shocking? I can yeah. tell you what was shocking was that this Somalian gang, their defence to raping and uh, grooming and sex trafficking young women was to say it's part of our culture. Sure. Now I take the view of saying. That's not Islamic. It's not culture. It's not something we should tolerate in right. this country. Right. And I don't believe that the, the fact of the headline was, funny enough, most people from Somalia are Muslim. It wasn't a fact of people Muslim. It was the fact of their defense of these evil acts yeah. against women was that, that it was part of their culture. I don't believe, personally, I do not believe mm-hmm. that is part of Islamic culture and Islamic teaching. Okay, absolutely. Sounds good. Yeah, um, I just want to move on now. Just one brief question um, I want to ask on foreign policy. Sure. Which is, um, you've said that you stand by Conservative Party principles and values. Yeah. And you've talked about trying to reduce any inequalities in country if elected again mm-hmm. um, nationwide. However, do you not feel that it's slightly hypocritical to try to reduce inequality on, in this country while at the same time um, helping to fund an illegal war in Yemen by funding and selling arms to Saudi Arabia, in which thousands of people become homeless, thousands and millions of people are starving and left without water, left without healthcare. 
Do you not feel there's hypocrisy? Well, well, no, I don't believe it's hypocrisy. I do think that the crisis in, in Yemen is probably, at the moment, the biggest humanitarian the crisis yeah, in the world. And so I think from that perspective, uh, we've got to do everything we can to actually end that crisis. Uh, I think the getting the, the various different parties to the table to get proper negotiations on peace is the first thing in terms of the foreign policy issue. Uh, yeah. then, then getting a settlement and making sure the international aid, and we have been providing enormous amounts of international aid. It's, it's, still, sorry, biggest, it's, got, it's still a seventh of that, the amounts raised in selling arms to then be used in Yemen. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a, we have a problem because the Yemen, in, in my view, and I you know, study these things, is a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And that's, I mean, that's our problem. Do we not feel that they're, well, the they're, Iranians by, halting, are, uh, they're by halting weapon sales to Saudi Arabia? Because Iran is not bombing Yemen, but Saudi Arabia is. Well, well I think there, are, there are atrocities on both sides. Yeah. This is the problem. And I think one of the problems here is that, as I say, it's a proxy war between two... States, I agree, and they, they no, are it is. It, it definitely. But so think I think it's better we, to not get involved as our country by funding well, one side rather than the well, other. Well, the, there's always a dilemma here uh, on do you do you fund uh, one or do, do you provide weapons to one side and not the other? Certainly, I would not uh, want us to be so providing the largest weapons to arms Iraq. exhibition in the world takes place I mean, in London. Actually, took place last week in London. Yep. Um, in central London. Now, you yourself have voted six times in Parliament in favour for use of UK military forces in combat operations overseas. Is a vote for Bob Blackman a vote for warmongering and, and a war around the world? No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, you re may remember back uh, when we had to take a decision about, uh, about whether we were going to get involved in various different uh, foreign adventures. I sought the assurance of the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary at the time to say, if I voted with the government, I didn't want a position whereby that would give us a free license to interfere in uh, in countries that, that that we have no involvement and no sure. justification for being involved. Yeah. Um, in the end, uh, we're, we're, that that particular issue was in Syria, and uh, I, I took the views I don't want British troops to be involved in Syria. Sure. I don't think it's right for us to interfere. Uh, but I do think there's a problem here with with what's going. I mean, Syria is another crisis yeah. with with when well, we could obviously talk about the various different movements of people who are just innocent people who are being moved from one country to another they're refugees right. they may suffer being being killed there are all sorts of problems here in, yeah. in across the world i've just been advised by my co-host that we are <coughs> running out of time um, it's been a great discussion a, a last question i want to ask you um any closing remarks, any pledges, any words for both the Harrow constituents and the listeners of this podcast? Well, I've, I've represented this area, uh, as you've quietly said at the beginning, for nine and a half years. I take up issues on behalf of constituents on a regular basis. I deal with, uh, I've dealt with more than 30,000 individual issues uh, on behalf of constituents over the last nine and a half years uh, and represented them to the best of my ability. If I'm re-elected, I will continue to help and assist every single person, regardless of their faith or background. I will assist them to the best of my ability uh, without fear or favour. I think this is something very important because we all talk about, obviously, why people vote in elections because of the party, because of the leaders and so on. But actually in me, you actually have someone who gets things done and will get things done for constituents Whoever comes to me, sure, and I don't care whether they're, they're of one faith or none. Right, they get the same treatment and they, the same okay. uh, capability from me. Thank to. you uh, very much for um, your answer, and thank you overall for speaking us with us on this podcast. I'd just like to remind viewers now to remember, remember, please remember to vote on December the twelfth 
in the general election, even if it's a postal vote. We've now had our podcasts with the Labour candidate, the Liberal Democrat, and now the Conservative candidate for Harrow East. I think we, uh, again, thank you, Bob, for, for joining us. I think um, it's it's an opportune moment to mention as well that participation and representation within the Muslim community is something which we are very passionate about. It's something that we want to increase in terms of numbers and levels. Uh, and this can only be done by having discussions um, with our uh, candidates beyond that also within uh, our own community circles to encourage one another to vote and we should not lose that opportunity. You can always reach out to us on hardyyouth at gmail.com uh, sorry, hudget.org rather. You can also <laughs> completely screw that up. Um, you can also reach out to us on, on social media. Uh, any questions, comments, ideas, suggestions for any forthcoming political podcast or even any general podcast which you'd like to hear on our channel. Uh, but thank you so much for listening and thank you for your time.